Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. So today, we are in chapter 5. And if you've been with us for a while, James is wrapping up. And I told you that the best was for last. So welcome to our Sunday service. Our message today is entitled, God's Greatest Gifts. And we're going to be in James chapter 5, in 13, 13, 14, and 15. So just three verses. Now you should be thinking, what could be God's greatest gifts? I mean, we, think about it. There's so many things we could pick from, right? From his death on the cross, he gave us life. He created the heavens and the earth. There's so many things that God has given us. But I want you for a moment to just uh, consider what I'm offering as possibly what God's greatest gift said. And we'll see how James ties it in so, so well. You know, it's interesting. As we've gone through James, you know, there's many people that don't like his directness. His frankness, he, he's, he's been very direct and he's been very critical sometimes and people will bristle sometimes as they go through the epistle of James because he's just so direct. Uh, he's, he's got candor, but here's the thing, James has the audacity to believe that Christians, people that call themselves by the name of the Savior, the creator of the heavens and the earth, that we should be somehow different than the rest of the world. And that's what James been doing is he's been telling us how we really need to be different. So let's recap just a little bit. We've been discussing the first four chapters and his teachings that James, and James, for example, reminds us that we're supposed to have trials in this world. It's not if you have them, but when you have them. It's not so much if you have temptation, but when you're tempted. And he says that we're supposed to rejoice in our trials and we're supposed to endure temptation. James then tells us the church has both the rich and the poor, but he cautions us to show partiality not to the rich. That too often the church, when they see somebody that's wealthy, well-to-do, uh, they welcome them and they want to make sure they, they feel comfortable and welcome because they think of that person as an asset to the church. Where the poor, they realize a lot of times it's a liability and they'd rather the poor not even and show up. James also tells us not to just talk the talk but to walk the walk. He said... That's not really what he says. He says this. He says, someone says he has faith but does not have works. How can he really be, have any faith? But what we say today is you have to walk the walk. It's not just talking the talking. You have to actually live out your faith. James reminds him, he says, can his faith truly save him? Again, if he doesn't walk the walk. He reminds us also to be careful what we say. And that's something where you really need today. He says the tongue can be a fire and defiles our fellowship with one another. He, he repeats it a couple times. And he says that every kind of bird, beast and bird and reptile and creature of the sea can be tamed. But the tongue, who can possibly tame it? These are strong warnings from James. And that's why as we've gone through this, we've taken our time and tried to see how they apply to us without getting too vexed without being too burdened by some of these admonitions by, by, by James. But at the same time, James has made it very clear that um, there's a few things that he considers to be very important, very important indeed. And, and the first is that James is very concerned uh, that 
that he wants to be clear that the members of the body of Christ are not only to be better about treating each other, but they are to be better together. Okay, the reason he wants us to be better is because we need to be better together. Now, this is my first observation. James wants us to not just be better, but better together. James is writing to a church, remember, that's been scattered. These are people typically that came out of Jerusalem and they had to leave behind their possessions. They had to leave behind many of their friends and their relatives. They, they were basically thrown out of the synagogues. They were thrown out of the temples. They were under pure persecutions. Uh, James writes to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. That's in verse 1 of chapter 1. These early believers were being persecuted sometimes by their, by their friends by their families. They had to pick up and leave Jerusalem. And who did they have? They had each other. They had each other to rely on. And that's why James wanted them to be better because they needed to be better together. But that actually brings me to our, our, my second point, which is that James has a very high regard for what we call the church. Now, they didn't call it the church back then, but he has a very high regard for it. He thinks it's one of the most important things we have is we have this, this church. Now, back then, it wasn't called the church. It was, if you remember, it was called the way. And the reason it was called the way is because Jesus said that he was the way, the truth, and the life, that no one comes to the Father except through him. So the people that followed this Jesus that called himself the way, they called them people of the way. They called them people of the way. Now, it, it says, for example, uh, we know this because it, it Paul, for example, uh, Paul used to be called Saul. And Saul was a Pharisee, and he didn't think too much of these people called the way. In, in Acts chapter 9, it says, Then Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priests and asked letters from them to the synagogues of Damascus, so that if he found any who were of the way, there's that word again, any of the way, whether men or women, they might be brought bound to Jerusalem. So one of the words used for the church is the way. Now, now, the other word that's used, and we often pass it over so quickly because it's translated as fellowship. And that word is a Greek word called koinonia. I love that word, koinonia. And it's translated directly as fellowship. But because it's translated directly as fellowship, sometimes we, we miss it that actually that's what the scriptures are calling the church. So, for example, in uh, the second chapter, Acts, verse 42, it says this. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship. That's the word koinonia. You know, often when you read that, you say, and to fellowship. But no, there's a direct article. It's and to fellowship, meaning they dedicated themselves to the church. They dedicated themselves to the gathering together, to being together. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs that were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all, if any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts. Praising God and having favor with the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being said. You know, so along with this, this word, um, the way, and this word fellowship, James often throws another word in there. Do you remember what the word was? He calls us brethren. And we said before that when they say the word brethren, brethren is always associated with a, a people of a certain belief. 
So we are brethren if we all have a very common belief. Remember, these people were coming out of Jerusalem. They were Jews by, 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 by blood. They grew up as Jews, and they had the temple, and they had the high priest, and they had the Jewish laws. But as they accepted Jesus as their Lord and Savior, they were no longer friends of the Jews. They were cast out. They had each other, but they had a common faith, and they were called brethren. Jesus refer, James refers to these, these believers as brethren. So it's my two observations today that brought us through the first four chapters. The two observations, again, and you have it in your bulletin, is that we're better together. James wants us to be better because he wants us to be better together. And secondly, the church and everything that it represents is probably the most important thing. It's our fellowship. It's primary to who we are. It's the centrality of our faith. So today we'll be reading in verses 13, uh, 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 verses 13, uh, 14, and 15 of chapter 5. And it's in your bulletin as well, and you can read along with us. James writes, he says, Is any among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. And let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he'll be forgiven. Just three verses today from James as we get close to the very end of James' epistle. You know, just this last week at our Wednesday Bible study, and again, I encourage you, if you can, to come to our, our Bible studies. We're going through a, a, a thing called the Bible Project. And we try to do an actual whole book of the Bible in a matter of 50 minutes. Now, that's almost impossible to do. Some of these, some of these books of the Bible have like 45, 50 chapters. Um, to, this last week, we went through 2 Chronicles. And again, there's like 42 chapters in 2 Chronicles. It's a very long book. So I knew going into it that I wasn't going to be able to cover 2 Chronicles completely. You need to spend a lot more time than that. Um, it basically starts off with Solomon and the building of the temple. And that occupies the first nine or ten chapters. But I knew before I started teaching what I wanted to teach on. And that was one of my very favorite Jewish kings. And his name was Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat was like a great-grandson of Solomon. So he was early in the reign of Judah, right after David and Solomon. His great-grandson is Jehoshaphat. And Jehoshaphat turns the hearts of the people back to the Lord. He was a good king. He pulled down some of the temples and some of the idols on the high places and tried to do the right thing. He sent the, he sent the, uh, uh, the elders out and he sent some of the Pharisees out uh, and he, uh, some, some of the uh, scribes and he had them teach the people the law. And so he was a very, very good king. And, and actually there's a, a couple of things that we taught on it, but the first thing I did is I had our class laugh. Remember that? We laugh first. And the reason why is because in Hebrew there is no J. There's no J. There's no J in Hebrew or Greek or Latin. Uh, it's always a, a Y sound. So, for example, uh, the word Jacob is actually Hakob, Hakob, okay? Or the word, um, uh, the word Joseph is Yokov, okay? So there's no J sound. And the reason we laughed is because the true pronunciation of uh, Jehoshaphat is Yosophat, Yosophat. <laughs> So now the reason I actually brought him up is not to make people laugh, although that is funny, Yosophat, okay, is because Jehoshaphat was such a godly man, godly king, that he gave us some principles. And his principles are important and they're relevant to our lesson today. 
The first thing that Jehoshaphat taught us was that godly leaders seek, seek God first and last. We seek God first and last. You know, so many times we go through life and, and we're thrown a curve, right? Uh, we get a phone call. We don't like the message on the phone call. We get a, a report back from our doctor and we start worrying. We start doing all kinds of things. We wonder who we can talk to, where we need to go to God first. And Jehoshaphat understood that you need to go to God first and last. And, and the other principle that he had was, was very similar. He said that the reliance first and last on God is always the best approach to solving every important issue. Now, there was a period of time when Jehoshaphat and, and the people of Judah were being attacked uh, by, by, uh, by the kings to the south. Number of Mo the Moabites and a number of different kings were attacking Judah. And you would think the first thing the king would do would to be to train some soldiers or to conscript some more soldiers or to get to make sure they have swords and training. And what Jehoshaphat did is not only pray, but he had the choir lead the army out. Just like the, the, at Jericho, he had the choir lead the army out. And as a result, the people of Israel, of Judah, never even had a fight. God took their battle. So Jehoshaphat's saying, not only pray first, but it, it's a great way to solve all of our problems in life. Notice that James, over the last four chapters, has been giving us the same kind of advice. And we see it again today. He says, take it to the Lord. He wants us to rely first and last on God. It's really the answer to every question, the method that the people should trust, which is the wisdom that the Lord gives us. Trust it first and last. You know, James says in our scripture today, he says uh, that if you're suffering or you're cheerful, that's the first two things he says. If you're suffering, pray, and if you're cheerful, sing praises. Now, it's interesting he used those two words because, quite frankly, they're, they're opposites. I can't think of a greater opposite from suffering than to be cheerful. You can't do both at the same time. You know, he doesn't say, for example, if you're suffering or you're hopeful. No, no. He says, if you're suffering or you're cheerful, go to God first. We can depend on God. You know, when we think about it, these declaratives by James, now I was going to say commands, but there's already too many commands in the Bible. These, these declaratives are, are practical advice. They're the best advice that James could give you, the very best advice. He says, if anyone is cheerful, they should pray. Right? He says, well, sing psalms, but you know, singing psalms is nothing more than worshiping God. It's the same as, as praying. You know, when we offer the Lord a prayer, our, our hearts go up to the Lord and he, he hears us. And the same thing when we sing psalms, we're singing him the very things that he told us and we're offering this up as a, as a prayer to God. It's wonderful advice. And this is, gets us to the point of our message today. If you've been thinking about it, what would be the greatest gifts? I'm going to give for your consideration God's greatest gifts, and it comes in two parts. Two parts. The first part is prayer. Prayer first and last is amazing. This is how we connect with God. It's, 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 the, it's the way that God wants us to be able to respond to his grace and to his mercy. It chases away the downcast spirit. It sings praises to God for the many blessings that we receive every day. Now, I said God's greatest gift, and here's the second part. We have to continue reading. Remember in verse 14, it says, Is any among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let him pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick, and the Lord will raise him up. 
You know, the word sick is completely different than this word suffering. The word suffering in Greek has this word pathology in it. It's kakopatheo. It's the same word that we get pathology, which is the, it's a study and it's, it's the disease that's coming through. It's, it's a bad pain. And it's kind of referred to as something that starts in your head. It, it's, it's the pathology of it. And if that, that's the idea of suffering. But the Greek word for sick is completely different. And it's used many, many times in the New Testament because many people that Jesus met were sick. They were infirmed. The word of that's ethaneo, and it means an illness. Strong says that it means being without adequate strength, to be feeble, to be frail, to be sickly. Can you relate? Can we relate? I mean, look at our audience today. I mean, all of us know people that are like that. We pray for people that are like that, people that are, that, that are difficult. It's difficult for them because they don't have the adequate strength to do what they were able to do maybe just even yesterday. So what does James says? He says, let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick. So here's the second part of God's greatest gifts. We, we have each other. We have the church. Our pastors, our elders, that's what this verse is saying. It says, let him call the elders of the church. Let him call the church. Remember, we're better together. So we call the people in the church to, to pray for each other. We anoint with oil. God, we rejoice over them. The Apostle Paul understood and taught this as well. As God's greatest gift to us was the church, the koinonia, our fellowship. He spoke about how important it was for us to be together. Paul says, for example, but now this is chapter 12, by the way, of 1 Corinthians. Paul says, but now indeed there are many members. Yet only one body, and the eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. No, much rather, those members of the body which seem to be weaker are necessary. And then and later, just a few verses later, Paul tells us how we do church together, how we're better together. Paul says in verse 26, and if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. If one member is honored, all the members rejoice with it. Did you get it? Did you get that? I mean, this idea is that when one of us suffer, we all suffer together. We all come together. We're all concerned. We all lift our voices up to God and we, we pray together. That's why Paul says if one member suffers, all the members suffer. If one member is honored, we all rejoice. If one person cries, we all cry. If one person is happy, we, we're all happy for them. James said we all pray. We all sing psalms. If they're sick, let the elders of the church come and pray. Now, maybe you're thinking, and that's why I had to stop it, maybe you're thinking that this verse says something to you that James perhaps is not saying. James is saying, maybe James is saying that we have the elders, we have the priests, we have the pastors, and they're, they're miracle workers. They can lay hands on people, they can anoint them with oil, and they can heal them. But if we believe that, we're missing James' point. Because James says, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. And the Lord will raise him up. And if he's committed sins, he'll be forgiven. So what saves the sick? It's the prayer of faith. Prayer was what we said was God's greatest gift. That was part one, remember? Part one was God's greatest gift is prayer. The second part is that we, the church, do, better, do things better together. We're better together. We have this koinonia. We have this fellowship. 
It's prayer that saves the sick. We pray and God does the work and God is the one that always gets the glory. Now, I want to address the very last part, verse 15. Because in verse 15, it says something very interesting. Especially if you're evangelical, if you're coming out of a Baptist background, a Presbyterian background, if you're coming out of a Methodist background, you're not coming out of a Catholic background because the Catholics understand this completely differently. But it says this, it says, if he's committed sins, he will be forgiven. So I just want to take you through a little bit. What's the requirement, first of all, to being forgiven? The requirement is that they sin. Well, who sins? Well, we all sin, right? The Bible says that we all sin and fall short of the glory. So the first requirement is that we, we sin. Is he referring to them that are sick? No. He's referring to those that, that sin. He says that those have committed sins, they'll be forgiven. James is talking about forgiveness. And who forgives sins? Well, we know that the Bible is very, very clear that it's God that forgives sins through Jesus. It's because of the work of Jesus on the cross that our sins are forgiven. In fact, here's the thing, is when we come to Jesus in faith, that's Romans 10.9 kind of summarizes it for us. Romans 10.9 says, if you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. Now, when you're saved, your sins are forgiven. Which sins are forgiven? All of them. Not just the sins you've committed to the time, because remember, Jesus' death on the cross was 2,000 years ago. So all of our sins, all of us, were way in the future. And all of our sins, past, present, and future, are all forgiven. The Bible says we're no longer under the curse of the law. Our sins have been forgiven. This is important because Jesus died for all of our sins. If he only died for our past sins, our sins up to the time that we make him Lord and Savior, we say a sinner's prayer, then Jesus would have to die over and over and over and over and over again. But the book of Hebrews says that he died once. He died once for the sin of man. And after that, he sat down at the right hand of God. He sat down. The high priest never was able to sit down. But Jesus sat down because his work was finished. It was complete. All of our sins, past, present, and future. So let's review our lesson for today. James is telling us a, a number of interesting things. Remember I told you he saved the best for last. He said, is someone suffering? Let them pray. If you're cheerful, sing a psalm. If you're sick, call the church together. Bring the elders. Bring the pastors. Allow them to anoint you, and the prayer of faith will save the sick. The Lord will raise them up, and if he's committed sins, they'll be forgiven. So again, what is the condition to be forgiven? Okay, to have sin. We all sin. We all sin and fall short. We're all forgiven by the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ once and for all. So again, what's God's greatest gift to us? Well, it's two things. One is to, to pray. Pray puts you in the presence of God immediately. We no longer have to go to the high priest. We don't have to come into a church. We don't have to go before a temple. We just close our eyes and offer a prayer to God. And we're immediately in the throne of God and he hears us. And he has the ability to do immeasurably more than we can ever hope or think. That's what God can do for us. And the second thing is we have each other. Because when one person suffers, we all suffer. When one person rejoices, we all rejoice. We have each other. We have the koinonia. We have the fellowship. We have everything in common. That's what it said in the second chapter of Acts. We had everything in common. 
We do life together. We fellowship. And if someone is sick, if they're feeble, without adequate strength, what do we do? We call the elders of the church. We pray for them. We believe that God hears the prayer of the faithful and God will raise them up. And if they've committed any sin, it'll be forgiven as well. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you, Lord. As we're wrapping... You've been listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org. 